So this is the third talk, uh, which I've entitled Worship Today, or Worshiping in the Tradition, Principles from the Past for the Present. Uh, this is the third of three, which is obvious, third of three. Uh, the first one was worship in the Bible, second one was worship in history, this one's worship today. And what I want to do is take some of the principles that we've seen from the past liturgies and apply them today. Now, worship matters, hopefully you've seen that, uh, but let's maybe define worship bit more clearly because in the Bible you've got uh, a text like Romans 12, 1 to 2 that speaks about worship being the whole of life. Okay, so that's worship in a broad sense and then worship in a narrow sense relates to what you do when you come together. So liturgia is the Greek word. Uh, liturgy comes from a Greek word liturgia and it can be used broadly for the whole of your life and it can be used narrowly for what they did at the tabernacle and temple. The book of Hebrews uses it for that more narrow sense. And that's really what we're, what I'm referring to when I talk about liturgy. I'm talking about what we do when we gather, what are the essential elements of Christian worship, and what order should we put them in. Um, a text that I, uh, I really like in regards to corporate worship is Hebrews 12, 12 to 22, but you have not come uh, to Mount Sinai, to a fire blazing uh, with thunder and lightning, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, to an innumerable company of angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, uh, the mediator of a better covenant. Um, that is a picture of the church militant on earth, gathering together, joining the church triumphant in heaven. So when we worship on the Lord's Day, uh, we gather with angels and archangels, with the martyrs and the saints who have gone before us. That's the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Um, and I'll come back to that uh, at the end. So worship matters. Uh, let me make three points on worship in general. One qualification and then nine or ten principles. We'll see how we go. See what I feel like. Okay. <laughs> See how the spirit leads. Okay. First, uh, worship is inescapable. Worship is inescapable. That is a liturgy is inescapable. I remember years ago, a Baptist minister in Cambridge uh, said that on his Sundays off, he would like to go to the local Anglican church uh, because he enjoyed the liturgy. Because he, in his Baptist church, he says we don't have liturgy, uh, so I enjoy a bit of liturgy. He said. Um, but it was a false dichotomy, because if you think about it, it's not whether your church has a liturgy, it's just which liturgy it has. Every church has a liturgy. I, wouldn't even, I would say, if we're being really picky, pernickety, we would say that it's not even a case of whether you have low liturgy or high liturgy. Every church has a liturgy. What is a liturgy? It's the order of elements in a church service. Uh, I was brought up in the Christian Brethren, and they were very big on, um, you know, we don't have a liturgy here, just led by the Spirit in their services of worship. But it had developed over the years into this unspoken liturgy. There were certain things you did in a certain order, and woe betide you if you, if you deviated from that order. Uh, and then I went to a Brethren Assembly in Australia, where I studied for ministerial training, and um, 
I went to a brother's assembly one day, and it was exactly the same as my brethren service in Ireland. And the brethren have never written a book of church order or a, or a liturgy, a book of common prayer. And yet it was nearly identical. And I thought this is, sociologically, this is fascinating. Uh, that it had just been passed on from elders to elders who traveled and preached and said, this is what you should do in church. So everyone has a liturgy. It's not whether you'll have one, it's just which liturgy you'll have. So liturgy is inescapable, worship's inescapable. Second, we've seen it already, the gospel and worship go together. The gospel and worship go together. The gospel impacts everything. Uh, it impacts architecture, furniture, and it impacts the spiritual architecture of a church service. And then third, uh, we worship with all the saints, past and present. Uh, we are not just interested in looking at only what the Bible says. We want to look what the Bible says as our final authority to look how God has providentially ordered worship through the history of his church. Um, so as I mentioned, some of the reformers, uh, uh, some of, they were all big on we were recovering the ancient Roman liturgy. Okay, before it had become corrupted by the Roman Catholic Church. They wanted to take the basic elements of it and refine it and reform it. And you see this in the titles of uh, some of their works. So Calvin's liturgy was called the form of ecclesiastical prayers according to the custom of the ancient church. That was the full title of his liturgy. The form of ecclesiastical prayers according to the custom of the ancient church. Um, Heinrich Bullinger, uh, his liturgy was described by Ludwig Lavater, who was his son-in-law. Uh, anybody heard of Ludwig Lavater? No? Yeah. Third most published Zurich reformer. All right. And his little piece on liturgies is in the book Reformation Worship. Uh, he's a sort of unknown, and yet he was actually a really significant guy after Spengli and Bullinger. Uh, in Zurich. He said, as much as possible, lit Bullinger's liturgy has restored all things to the first and simplest form of the most ancient apostolic church. See what they were doing? They were just trying to get back to how the apostles in the ancient church worshipped. In other words, tradition mattered for the reformers. Uh, they were determined not to move the ancient boundary stones, as Proverbs 22, 26 warns us. Um, and so they kept the key elements. And I've already quoted Cyprian. Uh, you cannot have God as your father without the church as your mother. They said, when we worship, we ought to look like our mother. That was the idea behind keeping some of the tradition. Okay, those are the three sort of general comments to begin with. Worship is inescapable gospel and worship go together and um, we worship with all the saints present and past okay a qualification before we get into the pr principles um, i'm not going to give you the set order of worship okay when you look at the reformation liturgies we did 26 in this book what was interesting and if you go to the back of the book there's an appendix where we line them all up against each other uh, the order of the elements. And you see that there's variety. There's a general order, adoration, confession, uh, assurance, thanksgiving, petition, prayer, script preaching, etc., benediction at the end. There's a general order, and yet things get moved about 
at different points in each of the liturgies. And that's okay, because the Bible doesn't actually give us one set liturgy, okay? And Luther, Calvin, Cramer, they were all very, um, uh, what's the word, uh, generous to others who had written liturgies, and they said that your country, your culture, and your context would impact what you do in church and the order of your elements, etc. And they were very big on that their liturgy was not to be a law bound around people's necks. It was just a help for when you gather. They were big on it, people not deviating from it in their churches. Calvin, on his deathbed, said, change nothing that I've set up. <laughs> you know? Thank you. you. You did steal from Buttes or anyway. Uh, change nothing. Um, so, you know, they were big on sticking with it, but they were also saying it doesn't have to be the same in every context. Okay. Principles of Christian worship. I've got about nine or ten here. We'll see how we go. First, Christian worship is Trinitarian. Christian worship is Trinitarian. I know that's an obvious point, but it is interesting how so much of modern church worship is not Trinitarian. Uh, you hear a lot about Jesus, and you hear next to nothing about the Father and the Spirit. I remember being at a large evangelical student conference in Australia for about five or six days, and uh, I heard a lot about Jesus. It was great. Uh, I heard next to nothing about the Father and the Spirit. Um, cults mention Jesus a lot, but they never talk about the Trinity. And uh, I think that's a good way to counter cults and make sure we're not cultish or um, deviating from the true Christian faith is to show that we're Trinitarian. And the liturgies of the Reformation were permeated with references to the triune God. Uh, for example, the prayers frequently refer to honoring and magnifying God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, the prayers generally followed a Trinitarian formula. They were made to the Father through the Son in the power of the Spirit. Uh, Cranmer's prayer at the beginning of Holy Communion, uh, I mentioned already, it has that triadic structure. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, so that we may perfectly love you and magnify, worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. See, Trinitarian, Father, Spirit, Son. Uh, prayers of petition often concluded with the Trinitarian formula through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit one God forever praised Amen so prayers were structured Trinitarian uh, according to the Trinity or they were concluded with that Trinitarian formula um, so prayers made the service very Trinitarian second the creeds saying a creed helped to do that uh, third, the Lord's Supper often had references to the Trinity where the Gloria Patri was sung. I'll come back to Gloria Patri in a wee minute. Uh, the benediction was Trinitarian, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So from the first prayer to the closing benediction, there was constant attention on the Trinity. Uh, these were not just isolated or subtle references. The whole service was permeated with references to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 
And so I think we need to reflect on our services. How much do people hear about the Trinity in our services? Now, I'm aware I'm probably preaching to the choir here, to the Trinitarian choir. Uh, So maybe not so much a problem in yours, but maybe you know people in other services, churches where their service isn't like this as much. Uh, Some practical things I think that we can do to make our services more Trinitarian. The opening words of the service as we welcome people, uh, as we call people to worship, we can say, uh, these are some of the things I would say when I was a minister, uh, we've come this morning to worship God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So please stand as we hear him call us to his worship. Something like that that just orientates people. Uh, Or we've gathered on this Lord's Day to worship our great God, whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Or the salutation, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, The other thing that I tried to do when I was a minister, and I picked this up from Ian Hamilton, who was the senior minister who I worked with, uh, Ian would often have the first hymn as a Trinitarian hymn. Uh, His point was in the early church, most hymns all were Trinitarian. They had some kind of uh, verse that referred, some kind of verse, a verse that referred explicitly to the Trinity. Um, I think we should sing a psalm every service, at least one, uh, and I think we should sing one Trinitarian hymn every service, or, or have something there that's Trinitarian. Now, you can also do that with the Gloria Patri, um, which uh, is, you know, glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit or Holy Ghost as it was in the beginning, is now and evermore shall be. There are different versions of that. Glory be to God the Father, glory be to God the Son, glory be to God the Spirit, ever three and ever one as it was in the beginning, is now and evermore shall be. Uh, That Gloria Patri goes back to, I think, about the 5th, 6th century, where this was said in the Magnificat and the Benedictus uh, in Christian worship. It was the little Trinitarian formula said at the end, it was recovered in Presbyterian worship by Charles Baird in 1855. He published a book called Eutaxia, uh, Presbyterian Liturgies, A Historical Sketch. And it was Baird who reintroduced into Presbyterian churches in America the Gloria Patri and the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Um, just out of interest, how many of your churches, hands up, sing or use the Gloria Patri or the doxology? Okay, okay. Um, how many, and I'm not trying to explore, okay, this could get awkward. Uh, well, let me ask, just hands up in general, do your churches have some kind of Trinitarian hymn in the service? At some point, like the Gloria Padre doxology or something. Okay. Something to think about is, is, you know, introducing that element if you're a pastor here or an elder. Uh, or you could just respectfully ask your pastor, is it possible to do that? Um, I think can be helpful. Um, sorry? No? Okay. okay. Uh, the rebellion has broken out already. <laughs> You'll, you'll be banned from going to the Bold North Conference. Yeah. Okay, the other thing is prayers. Uh, when you pray, you can pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. You can structure your prayer, Father, to the Father through the Son, 
in the Spirit. And then the conclusion, you know, through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever praised. Amen. Something I've started doing in my prayers uh, in public worship. Uh, one or two of my prayers, I will use that formula at the end. It's, it's a reminder to me who I'm praying to and through and in. Uh, I, f I find it helpful. Um, okay, uh, Lord's Supper. There can be um, references to the Trinity. And then the benediction. I would say in my benediction, lift up your heads by faith, receive the blessings of the triune God. <coughs> Or the blessing of the triune God, and then give the, the benediction. So, Christian worship is Trinitarian. That is the first principle. Second, Christian worship affirms the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And uh, here I'm referring back to the use of creeds. Um, I think a, having a creed in a church, as I mentioned, it does a number of things. Uh, one is... It, um, it aligns you as a church with the Christian church through 2,000 years. And uh, it shows people, your own congregation, but also um, visitors, that you're not some weird cult. That actually you, you belong in this tr Christian tradition. Uh, it also evangelizes... The, the newcomer, the outsider, it teaches our children what are the basic elements of the Christian faith. Uh, my son goes to a Reformed Episcopal school. It's run out of a Reformed Episcopal church. And every day he is in matins in the morning for 15 minutes and evensong in the afternoon for 15 minutes. And every day he says the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer and a creed. And I love it. My, my son's 10, and he could probably tell you it off by heart now. Um, so he knows the basic elements of the gospel. Of course, that doesn't save him, but the, the, the grammar is there for him to begin to put it all together. And, and so I think that can be helpful. Um, so I mentioned earlier that I think there's some basis in Scripture for this. You know, um, I, God didn't just make us... Um, Worshipping creatures, but also creedal creatures uh, to believe things, uh, to affirm things. And we see this in uh, 1 Timothy 3.15. He speaks about the church being the pillar and buttress of the truth. And Paul says, Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. Christ was manifested in the flesh, or God was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. They think, scholars believe, think that was uh, an early form of a Christian creed, a, a saying that was used to remind people of what Christians believe. And here's Paul using it, and he says, we confess the mystery of godliness. Um, so creeds, I think, uh, are important. Uh, in the Apostles' Creed, God the Father is affirmed as omnificent, the maker of heaven and earth. His Son, Jesus Christ, is affirmed as the only begotten Son conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and who from womb to tomb to throne won salvation for us. He's seated and reigning, and he will soon be returning. The Holy Spirit is affirmed as the one who brought into existence the one holy Catholic apostolic church, and by whom we enjoy communion with all the saints and forgiveness of sins. 
The Spirit also serves as the guarantee of our future resurrection from the dead and the life of the world to come. All of that is affirmed in the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed reaffirms the same beliefs but expands on the deity of the Son and the Spirit. The Son is begotten of the Father before all worlds, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. Uh, there's also an expansion on the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by prophets. The Athenian Creed is the fullest defense of the Trinity, and here the confession is said in antithetical terms. Each person of the Godhead is affirmed as being uncreated, incomprehensible, eternal, almighty God and Lord. But then there are also denials of tritheism interspersed throughout. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not three eternal beings. They are not three uncreated beings. They are not three incom incomprehensible beings. They are not three almighty Almighties, they are not three gods, they are not three lords, there is but one God in three persons and three persons in one God. It's this beautiful uh, cadence to it of affirming and denying things about God. And so it ends that we worship, or it begins that we worship one God in Trinity and the Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And here's these words in the Athanasian Creed, which, except a man believe faithfully, he cannot be saved. I mean, can you be saved without believing in the Trinity? Okay. Now, do you need to understand all of the Trinity? No. But if you even say you believe in Jesus, you're already affirming the Trinity, aren't you? Who's Jesus? God's Son. Who's the Father? God the Father. Uh, how did Jesus offer himself in the Spirit on the cross? Uh, so even believing in Jesus as a little child, you are implicitly believing in the Trinity. And the Athanasian Creed makes it clear that unless you believe these things, you cannot be saved. So creeds uh, are important. Um, if I was a minister again, and listen to me, I'm just, I'm just causing real problems for you, Michael. <laughs> Just, here's the idealist standing up and spouting all the... Uh, I would do the Apostles' Creed for three months so that the congregation get to memorize it and know it. And then the Nicene Creed for three months every Sunday so they get to know that one. And then the Athanasian Creed because my sermons would be a lot shorter at that point. <laughs> I need to fill the time. But I would, I would do the Athanasian in three parts for three months and then you can mix it up a wee bit after that but my point being the point of the creed is to educate people but if you do a different creed every week then it's hard for the congregation to get to know the creed so i think there's a way to do it where you, you could do it for a set time then move on to the next one okay that's the second thing christian worship is uh, uh affirms the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Number three, Christian worship is focused on the incarnate word. That is, it's focused on Christ in his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and intercession, and his return. Uh, prayer, prayers are made through him. Uh, by him, our sins are forgiven. Uh, prayers are also made to Christ 
um, as well. Um, Diebold Schwartz uh, has this lovely prayer that focuses on Christ and his liturgy. O Lord, Holy, Almighty Father, Eternal God, you obtain salvation for us through the wooden cross so that life should come from the same as that from which death originated. And so that the enemy, who by transgression of the tree overcame us all in Adam, would be conquered through the obedience offered on the tree, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lovely prayer, just focusing in on Christ in the church service. So Christ should be central. It should be Trinitarian worship, but Christ as the God-man, our Savior, should be central. Number four, Christian worship is saturated with the written word. Uh, I think there should be Old Testament and New Testament readings. In a traditional Anglican service, you have Old Testament, New Testament, gospel reading, and sing a psalm. Or you have an epistle reading. So some traditional services have three or four readings. Uh, I think art services, not, not so much in what I've seen in OPC, PCA, but generally uh, free evangelical services in America and in the UK, I would call them not a service of the word, but a service of the sermon, where the canvas on which the sermon is set is nearly coextensive with the service. Okay, uh, What I mean there is that every song is connected to the sermon, uh, every prayer is connected to the sermon, then you have the sermon, then the person gets up at the end, reminds you what the sermon was about, you know? Um, and so the sermon sort of takes over the whole service, but uh, Cranmer called it a service of the word, not a service of the sermon. And the point there is that there are other scripture readings. There are other things to say beyond the sermon. Uh, so we praise God for being creator in our opening hymn or the Trinity. Um, and you pray for things beyond just the sermon. Okay. So um, the service should be saturated with the word and different parts of the word, which helps give the variety. Uh, if psalms are sung, that's another way for it to be saturated with the word. And then our prayer, our call to worship is a scriptural call to worship. It's not some words made up by the minister. It's God calling us to worship through his word. The prayers should be scriptural prayers, effused. You can have antiphonal readings from scripture in a service that helps uh, make the scriptures more present. Okay, number five, Christian worship is centered on the preached word. So whilst the service is the service of the word, one of the climaxes in the service is the preached word. Uh, I love the story of Calvin. He leaves Geneva, gets kicked out, goes to Strasbourg for three years. And he was in the middle, I think it was in the book of Acts. And uh, he goes away for three years, comes back, and his first Sunday back, he just picks up on the next verse <laughs> in Acts. And it uh, just keeps going. And sort of in an unspoken way, just turn in your Bibles, to the, and he just keeps going. And I think that's a beautiful picture of Lectio Continua, that little phrase, the continual reading of the Bible, which is used for the continual preaching consecutively through books 
of the Bible. Uh, you have the homily tradition in the Anglican Church and also in Luther's tradition a bit, calendar readings, sermons. I'll come to that at the end about church calendar versus not the church calendar um, in a moment. Uh, but the word, the preached word is central. Okay, it's one of the high points in the service. I, I think it's helpful to bring it earlier. Uh, I think people, jokes aside, I think people are more attentive. If you have so much going on before the sermon, they're like, right, we've still, still got a 40 minute sermon. Right here. You know, uh, whereas if you actually have it earlier and you put intercessory prayers after the sermon, then I think you have a better chance of people giving attention to it. Uh, okay, so preach word is central. Number six. Christian worship incorporates the visible word. It's centered on the incarnate word on Christ. It's centered on the preached word, and it incorporates the visible word. Now, from last night's lecture, do you remember the basic order of liturgy? Call, response, meal. Uh, people, when they've heard that lecture, often say to me, so do you think every church service should end with the Lord's Supper? Yes, I do. Um, you know, Calvin wanted it to end with the Lord's Supper every time, but he couldn't get his magistrates to agree to it. He, he wanted weekly communion. Um, John A. Lasco and Martin Macronius in the Strangers, the Dutch Exiles Church in London, the Strangers Church, they did it every other week. And the only reason they did it every other week is they couldn't get around visiting the congregation within one week in order to check who should or shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. But that every two weeks they were checking everyone was okay to come to the table. Uh, so they probably would have had it more frequent. Some people say, well, but if we have it every week, then it's going to just become sort of second nature and we'll be presumptuous and we won't concentrate as much on it. And I get that, but then you can say that about any element of Christian worship. Prayer, singing, preaching, that you just sort of become used to it. So it's my own view, I think the liturgy and the scriptures would encourage us certainly to be having it frequently. Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' teaching, prayer, fellowship, and the Lord's Supper. Well, we continue regularly each week in those first three, but not as regularly in the Lord's Supper. Now, does it say do it every week? No, but it gives the impression they were doing all four regularly. So, something to consider. Listen to these beautiful words from Cranmer about the Lord's Supper. Our Savior Christ has not only set forth these things most plainly in his holy word, that we may hear them with our ears, but he has also ordained one visible sacrament of spiritual regeneration in water and another visible sacrament of spiritual nourishment in bread and wine to the intent that as much as is possible for man, we may see Christ with our eyes, smell him at our nose, taste him with our mouths, touch him with our hands, perceive him with all our senses. For as the word of God preached puts Christ into our ears, so likewise these elements of water, bread and wine joined to God's word do after a sacramental manner put Christ into our eyes, mouths, hands, and all our senses. 
I think that's beautiful. So the preached word puts Christ into our ears. The Lord's Supper puts him into our hands, into our mouths, into our nostrils, um, into our eyes. Okay, so Christian worship incorporates the visible word, word. Number seven, Christian worship is tied to church discipline. So what's interesting with the Reformers' liturgies is the Lord's Supper. It becomes a means of discipline in the church. So reformers, they warned those not to come to the table who were sinners, unbelievers, idolaters, blasphemers, heretics. Uh, it helped remove those people, but they also welcomed people, sinners, to the table. So they warned sinners not to come to the table who were unrepentant, but they also welcomed repentant sinners to the table. Here's Calvin. If we have such a testimony in our hearts before God, let us not doubt in the least that he acknowledges us to be his children and that the Lord Jesus in speaking to us, bringing us to his table and offering us this holy sacrament which he delivered to his disciples, let us all be assured that the vices and imperfections that are in us will not prevent him from receiving us, nor from making us worthy to share in this spiritual table. For we do not come insisting that we are perfect or righteous in ourselves, but rather seeking our life in Jesus Christ. We confess that we are dead. Let us understand, therefore, that this sacrament is a medicine for poor, spiritually sick people, and that the only worthiness that our Lord requires of us is to know ourselves well enough to be displeased with our vices and to find all our pleasure, joy, and contentment in him alone. Maybe we should make that a set word of institution in Presbyterian worship before we come to the Lord. Say, what a brilliant invitation. Do you feel inadequate? Then come. Come to the table, for it's a table for sinners. Okay, number eight, Christian worship is punctuated with praise. Uh, so this is one of the great things that the reformers did. The, the worship in the Roman Catholic Church had become a spectator event. They would just listen to the priest and the choir chant and sing. Uh, but now with Luther and Calvin and Butzer, it was the congregation were singing. We're all singing together, participating, and in different ways. Psalm singing, hymns, Calvin, Luther writing hymns. I think Calvin wrote, I greet thee who my sure redeemer art. Um, uh, he, the tradition uh, um, suggests that he uh, is the originator of that hymn. Uh, but you get these hymns written by these people, early church fathers, Ambrose, people like that wrote hymns. Um, and then you've got the Gloria Patri, the doxologies, things like that. Okay, Christian worship is punctuated with praise. Okay, uh, last two. This is where it gets a bit feisty. Okay, <laughs> hold on to your seats. Uh, Christian worship is body worship. Christian worship is body worship, whole body worship. Four postures. Okay, we'll build up to the most controversial. <laughs> Sitting. Okay, Mary sat at Jesus' feet, Luke tells us, as he taught the word in the house. Um, in Acts, they sit in a house to hear Paul teach. Whatever you do, just don't sit on the windowsill. Okay? So, it's 
I'll see these are, these are, I think you'll be all right here. These are locked here. Uh, <clears throat> so sitting, okay, for the word taught, fine. Uh, standing is a posture in worship. Um, in Ezra, they stand for the reading of the law. So in some traditions, when the scripture readings read, you stand for it. In the Anglican tradition, I think it's the gospel reading or the epistle reading, you stand for that reading. Uh, you can sit for others. Kneeling for prayer. Um, Daniel kneels to pray to God. Jesus kneels in Gethsemane to pray. And the Apostle Paul says, I bow the knee to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, hands up if you kneel for a prayer in your church service. Okay, got one Anglican among us. <laughs> oh, he's a Baptist, I think, so... So what, what, which prayer do you kneel for? As in the congregation kneels for it? Prayer of confession. Prayer of confession. Yeah, okay. Uh, personally, I like that. And I think it's biblical. We have examples of people kneeling. If you kneel, it is a very different posture. It's, it's a very different feeling. Even me doing this now, you're feeling awkward, aren't you? <laughs> but you're not feeling as awkward as I am. <laughs> But this is, this is a position of humility, right? There's nothing I can do really from this position, okay? And I, I, think, I think we should reintroduce knelt prayer for confession of sin. Um, and uh, I think it's a, it, it physically, the, the physical posture makes you concentrate because your knees are sore, okay? And so now you're thinking what you're praying. I, I think... Uh, somebody once said to a friend of mine, uh, a minister, he was, the, he was the man who took over from John Stott. Have you all heard of John Stott, the rector of All Souls in London? Richard Buse was his successor. And a friend of mine in London, Paul Levy, who's the minister of IPC Ealing, been there 20 years. When he first became a minister, he met up with Richard Buse for advice. And Richard Buse said, keep your prayers short after 30 seconds, nobody's listening anymore. <laughs> and I actually think he was on to something. I find my, I'm, I'm a Christian minister, and I find myself in, in public worship. Someone else is praying. My mind after 30 seconds is all over the place. I need to send that email. I need to do this. Um, we were late to church. Uh, <laughs> you know, trumpet you know. <laughs> uh, but my mind's all over the place so just connected to this I think the majority of prayers in a church service should be said corporately so adoration a, a short invocation prayer by the minister great that's fine confession definitely I think should be a corporate prayer said together so having it written on a page where you can see it, I think you concentrate more, you're more engaged with it. And then if you're kneeling, I think you're even more engaged with it. Uh, prayer of illumination, the reformers traditionally, that was said by the minister. I do that myself. Again, if I was to be back in ministry, I think I might actually get the congregation to say it with me because that's, they're now engaged in saying, Lord, open our hearts and minds to your word. Um, it's the Lord's prayer, obviously, we can say together. And then a colic, in the, in the Anglican tradition, you say a colic together, as well as the minister making prayers. And I think 
What, what I did, sorry, so I think that would be a helpful thing to take a prayer by Calvin or John Knox, a short prayer and have it in your intercessory prayer section. So you say the pastoral prayer, the intercessory prayers, and then you say, let's end this prayer together. Or you end the intercessory prayers with the Lord's prayer together. Um, so I think those little colics or short prayers can be also helpful as well. Uh, we, I, we're in a church at the moment where it's, it's great, the, it's a really good church service. Um, but the, 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 the pastoral prayer is so long, it's honestly about, I'd say, five to seven to ten minutes. And again, 30 seconds, right? <laughs> so and so I, I, I go in and out of concentration with it. I'm, I'm, I'm working harder at trying to stick with it. But what I did when I was a minister was I would say, we're going to pray for five things today. We're going to pray for our church and the evangelism course we're doing. We're going to pray for uh, our community. We're going to pray for the persecuted church in Pakistan. We're going to pray for the queen and the government. And we're going to pray for the disaster in Indonesia. And I would say, and after each prayer, I'm going to end with the words, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, please join me with a hearty amen. And so what it did was it just sort of broke it up a bit. They were shorter prayers, and we could all sort of stay engaged together. Now, that's just me. That's just my approach. But something, I think, to think about. Anyway, I got off topic. Kneeling. All right, sitting, standing, kneeling. I think we should kneel for certain prayers. Not every prayer, but certain prayers. Okay, controversial one. Raising hands. Okay, here we go. Raising hands. What do we do? I'm, I'm not going for clapping. All right, I know my audience. I'm not going for clapping. Though it is there. And, yeah, silent clapping. Uh, so... Uh, Lifting up hands, where do we get that? Psalm 134, lift up your hands in the sanctuary, all you servants of the Lord, lift them up. Praise the God of Zion. The Lord bless you from Zion. Nehemiah, after they hear the law, all the people raise their hands and say, Amen and Amen. And then the Apostle Paul, 1 Timothy 2, I wish that men would lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, the reformers didn't do a lot of this. They, they did speak about gestures and postures in public worship. Um, that, partly that was to do with the sign of the cross, which they generally got rid of. Um, but there is in the Presbyterian tradition, which I really like, the raising of the hands, perhaps in the invocation prayer, uh, where the minister prays, he raises his hands. I started doing that when I was a minister because what it did was it helped me keep my prayers short? <laughs> and, and I'm not sort of joking there. Like, actually raising your hand, it, it's a good reminder to the minister. Like, don't go on and on and on and on. Like, keep them short. And if you've got your hands raised, you're more aware of that. So there's that. Uh, during a prayer of illumination, I raise my hands for that. Um, so we have in Scripture hand raising hands up how many of your churches do any corporate hand raising at any point okay yeah well when do you raise hands what for um, sing, 
Singing? Okay. Now, would, would that be more individualistic? Okay. Sure. Yeah. Same? Same. Okay. Okay. Which, personally, I don't have a problem with. I, I was brought up in Africa as a missionary kid. And, uh, and so even the whole sort of body movement, uh, I, I don't really personally have a big problem. I think each culture is different. And this is where Calvin, Cranmer, and Luther were good. They said each culture, country, and context will express some of this differently. It still, it still has to be reverent. It has to have decorum about it. But you, you asked some dear African brothers and sisters to stand still while they're singing, and uh, you'll, you'll create robots out of them. Um, uh, so, again, listen to me, idealistic or dreamland. Uh, I would, if I was to be back, I think I'd encourage the congregation during the Gloria Patri or the doxology. Let's all raise our hands and praise God from whom all blessings flow. And it takes the individualistic element out of it, you know, each person doing it in their own time. It's like we're doing it as a body. Just like in Nehemiah, they raised their hands together and said, Amen and Amen. And so is there a way that you could incorporate that in public worship? Okay. You're never going to be allowed back to the Bold North Conference, are you? <laughs> like, you, you came and you left raving charismatics. <laughs> so I've been in one church... And that's what they do. They raise their hands in the Gloria Patri, the whole congregation. And it was really nice. I loved it. And I think, again, it engages the whole body. Worship is a whole body uh, experience. Whereas, generally speaking, in our churches, we stand and we sit. But is it not about our whole bodies being given in worship? So kneeling, I think, would be good to introduce. And then also... Um, lifting hands together in a corporate sense. Okay, final one. Another bit of controversy for a Presbyterian minister to be talking like this. At worship, Christian worship is timely worship. So the obvious one is uh, we worship on the Lord's day. Okay, in the old dispensation, in the old covenant, it was on the Sabbath, the last day of the week. Christ rose on the first day of a new week. And that's why the Christian, the worship changed from the old dispensation to the new to being the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Uh, John is on uh, the island of Patmos on the Lord's Day when he receives his revelation. We have some references to the meeting on the first day of the week in the book of Acts. Okay, and there's a bit of overlap. They, they still meet at the synagogue on the Sabbath, but they also meet on the first day of the week. And then as Christianity became more dominant and they moved away from their Jewish roots, it was Lord's Day worship. So that is first timely Christian worship. Christian worship is timely and it should be done on the Lord's Day. Um, second thing is be on time. Okay, <laughs> listen to the trumpet. I think that's a good thing. So that's the second one. Third, uh, so you've got the weekly Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath. Okay, and if you're really interested in this, um, there's a little book by Thomas Witherow uh, that I've published. I'm just the editor of it uh, called I Will Build My Church, uh, Selected Writings on Polity, Baptism, and the Sabbath. And this guy's an Irish Presbyterian, mid-1800s. 
Uh, he wrote on church government, he was a Presbyterian, uh, scriptural baptism, infant baptism, and the Sabbath. And he's got a brilliant little piece on the Sabbath, short little booklet. It's in this book, I Will Build My Church. And uh, that, and so if you just want a defense or an articulation of the con continuity of the Sabbath today, as in the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day, that is where I would point you. Um, okay, number 10, timely worship, Sabbath, be on time. And then, and then the third one, and this is where there's some differences in the Reformed tradition, church calendar. Should we observe the church calendar? So the tradition in Presbyterianism, not actually in the Confession, not in the larger, shorter Catechism, though it's implied there, but it's made explicit in, the, in an appendix to the 1645 Directory of Christian Worship in the Westminster Directory of Worship, 1645. In the appendix, they speak about not observing holy days, like feast days, like Christmas, um, Easter, Ascension, Pentecost. Okay, so really traditional Presbyterian churches won't do it. The Reformed Presbyterians generally. Uh, out of interest, any churches here, or if you go to church or your pastor church that observes none of those days, Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Okay, so so even so, what do you observe here, Michael? Uh, like you have a service about it, so celebrate Christmas. You have a Christmas service, Christmas Eve service. Uh, Good Friday service, Easter Sunday service. Yeah, okay. So that, that's what I mean by observing. They were called the five evangelical feast days. Christmas, um, circumcision of Christ was one, 1st of January, uh, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Pentecost, Ascension and Pentecost. Circumcision of Christ wasn't as common, but five evangelical feast days, okay? Um, these go back to the early church, when the Reformation came, they got rid of most of the feast days to do with saints and things like that. But they kept what was called the five evangelical feast days. Christmas, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, Ascension Sunday, and Pentecost Sunday. Okay, um, Presbyterianism sort of got rid of all of that. And uh, in the Directory of Worship uh, said it was forbidden. A Calvin in Geneva... Um, wanted a moderate approach to Christmas, he said. Um, and uh, he did not want it to rise to the level of the Lord's Day, like it was that significant uh, to be observed, like the weekly Lord's Day. But he himself was happy to observe it. Uh, and one year, he actually stopped his Lectio Continua preaching through books, and he preached for three months on the Nativity of Christ in one Christmas period. Um, but the other reformers, and now I'm hoping I can remember them all. So Martin Bucer in Strasbourg initially rejected the Holy Feast Days and then practiced them. Heinrich Bullinger, Lud uh, Swingley, Ludwig Lavater in Zurich, they all did the Feast Days and they did Circumcision of Christ, 1st of January as well. Um, some did Epiphany. Uh, uh, Zachariah Ursinus, the writer of the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the main authors of it, he honor, he observed the feast days. Uh, Francis Turretin, a century later, observed the feast days. Um, so the Dutch church did it. The Palatinate church did it. The Swiss church did it. The Anglican tradition did it in England. 
Uh, really, it was only the Presbyterians who eliminated it. Yeah, okay, so I think I think I've covered most of them. All that's to say is these are these are reform stalwarts. Okay, these aren't guys who are a bit loosey goosey, <laughs> wishy washy. Okay, these were true reformers, and they maintained it. So. My own view, I, I belong to the International Presbyterian Church in the UK. We can sign up to the Westminster Confession or to the Three Forms of Unity, uh, which is the Heidelberg, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. And uh, our denomination, one of the things I like about it, it has more of a continental feel to the, the Reformed heritage that we have. And so in most of our churches, we will observe Christmas, yes, Good Friday, Easter Sunday. Some will do a service of Ascension or Pentecost. Um, in the canons of Dort, you know, the five points of Calvinism that were uh, articulated in 1618, 1619. In the canons of Dort, there was, at the same time they wrote the canons, they also wrote a church order for the Dutch church. And articles 63 and 67 in those church orders to do with the Dutch church, they require the observing of the five evangelical feast days, require it. And if it is not observed in the provinces, that should start to be observed in the provinces, is the sort of uh, sentiment in those things. So this was a strong view. My own uh, view is, I, I think it's a good thing. I think it helps us remember, it's good, well, let me backtrack. Every Lord's Day, we remember the birth of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ, and his ascension and exaltation to the Father's right hand and the giving of the Holy Spirit. We celebrate that every Lord's Day. But I think it's good to have a period in the church year where you concentrate on some aspect of that. So Advent on the coming of Christ, Christmas Day, uh, epiphany, the appearing of Christ to the wise men, circumcision of Christ and epiphany. And then in the Easter season to do um, Good Friday, uh, Easter Sunday, Ascension Sunday, Pentecost Sunday. I think all of those are key aspects of the redemption accomplished. And I think it can be a good thing for us to, to observe those. So that, that's where I stand on, on those issues. And my point is, I asked, do any churches here don't observe any of those in any way? And there wasn't a single hand went up. And so my point is, well, if you're going to observe it, observe them well. <laughs> I don't just give a sort of a hat tip to it. So in Advent, I think all the sermons before Christmas should be Old Testament sermons. And then Christmas Eve, you get into the Nativity sermons and even preach them for the next week or two after. Um, so you're, we're continuing that concentration on the appearing of Christ in his first coming. Uh, Easter, again, you could do in the seven weeks before Easter, Old Testament prophecies of the suffering of Christ. Or you could take the seven sayings of Christ and preach through those as you lead up to Good Friday. There's ways that you can do it that I think can be very spiritually enriching. <clears throat> I was speaking to Joel Beakey end of August when I was up at a conference there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and I asked him what he does, and he was explaining that uh, during the Easter period, he preaches for seven weeks on the passion of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, in the build-up to Easter, and it's, it's a big deal in his tradition, and he says it's a very 
edifying and uplifting time for the congregation during that period. Okay, that's the tenth one. Christian worship is timely worship. It's on the Lord's Day, be on time, and you might want to think about the church calendar. All right, um, shall I close in prayer, and then there's a Q&A. Okay. Father, uh, we pray that the practical principles and lessons that we've thought about today uh, would be taken by us and that we would be helped in our public worship. If we are here as just members of churches, we pray you would help us to participate better than we do and that we would do so through new eyes, having been at this conference. We pray for the pastors and elders present. We pray you would give them wisdom and help as they uh, seek to continue to reform their worship according to your word. And we ask for your blessing uh, and safe journey for everyone as they return to their respective homes. And we pray that you would help us tomorrow as we prepare in our hearts for worship on your day. We pray that you would edify us greatly and that you uh, would be glorified as our great God and Redeemer. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.